Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Chris Ragg and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights, and this week we're discussing how language affects our attitude to immigration. Chris, you're going to kick us off. Off you go. Yeah, so um, this is really following the the recent resignation of the the British Home Secretary, uh, Amber Rudd, um, following a lot of criticism about uh, her handling of um, the treatment of uh, long-standing um, Caribbean migrants uh, who came over in the sort of 50s and 60s, the so, so-called uh, Windrush generation. Um, how there's been a sort of um, a great deal of criticism about uh, the hostile environment that was created in her government department towards uh, um, uh, immigrants uh, and how uh, also off the back of that there's been talk around how how uh, we talk about uh, or how we use language in in relation to um, immigrants into this country and the, uh, you know this there's been a suggestion uh, that instead of re- referring to them as um, illegal illegal immigrants uh, we might um, use other phrases one of which has been uh, mooted is uh, the term irregular migrants and that this uh, change of language or uh, um, a softening of the language around the way we talk about these uh, these people uh, might help change our attitudes towards them our um, policy and the political discussion around them generally. Okay so for the moment rather than asking you if you you know what you think of that change whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing what sparked your interest about this what's what's the aleph angle here well yeah i mean i think it's really this this a broader debate around to what extent changing language genuinely changes attitudes whether whether it does you know if you take the the orwellian school uh of um you know the fact that language is thought effectively and that by changing your language you are changing your uh, opinions and your thinking towards something whether that uh, holds true and is uh, demonstrably true or whether the opposite is true and that actually it merely um, brushes prejudice under under a rug well we'll come to nick in a moment but well let's answer that if we can what do you think do you agree so which side of which side of the fence do you fall well as as always with Aleph, i, I sit on the fence um so uh, you know my view is that uh you know, dehumanising language has been, uh, you know, um, uh, previous talk uh, by politicians about swarms of migrants coming and, and uh, floods and uh, maraud, you know, marauding hordes of migrants. That that kind of dehumanising language, I, th- I think, is uh, rarely associated with, um, you know, a, a sort of rational political discourse. Uh, about what the appropriate policy is it's very it's very emotional and it leads to emotional decision making um so i can see not using that language and not getting swept up in in uh that kind of um uh, discourse uh is is probably a positive thing but i also don't think just by not using certain words you are um sort of removing prejudice from a from a system i think it's still possible to use all the correct phrases but still uh still be prejudiced okay 
I think you're gonna. I thought you were gonna say all the correct phrases, but in not necessarily in the right order. <laughs> um, yeah, no. I mean, I, I will come to you in a moment, Nick. But I was just. It just strikes. I remember reading 1984, and at the time, as a, as a teenager, thinking, because I think one of the things he talked about was, yeah, if you if you remove the language from, if you move, if you remove the the vocabulary from the language, then it ceases to be possible to commit that crime. And I remember thinking at the time, well, let's say you remove the word murder, um, you could. St- People would still murder each other. Um, yeah, anyway, think, Nick. But it's about the. This is about the idea of a thought crime. Mm. That if you removed the idea of the word, um, you know, freedom, that people would no no longer desire to have it because they're unable to think about it. Anyway, I think we can pretty firmly say, on the basis of uh, what we understand about how language develops that Orwell was wrong on, on this particular topic, uh, right about everything he meant, I think, and the intention. Uh, no one would dispute there what he's trying to get at. I mean, you know, if we look at the history of euphemism, people as far back as, as Edmund Burke, you know, have been complaining about the use of euphemism. Ed, Edmund Burke talked about the fact that, you know, people sometimes call massacres agitation or effervescence or excess. Um it's it's clearly something that people get worked up about, you know, the use of uh, of of terminology that either is meant to diffuse emotion in the case of these sort of neutralising words like pacification, which is one that Orwell refers to, um, or to uh, you know to inflame emotion um, with the de- dehumanising language that Chris talks to, and there's no and there's no doubt about that. Um, in you know when you look at the evolution of genocides. Almost always, the first step in a genocide is dehumanizing uh, the the uh, people who are, who are going to eventually become victims, and a lot of the way that that's done is through is through language by referring to them as vermin or rats or you know talking about swarms of them. So th- so that it works, right? Dehumanizing language definitely does work. Um, this sort of thing works, but as a matter of fact, from what we understand about the way that language evolves um, and emerges. Uh, is is that you cannot simply sort of stop people's access to words and thus deny them access to thoughts. And the very, very simple, you know, observations will confirm that. If you look at uh, deaf children put together but not taught language will evolve, will develop sign language. And children in places where they're, where they're very sort of, uh, you know, multinational places where they there is no common language, but children who grow up, grow up together will evolve a new language, which is called a creole. And, um, you know, so that you language will emerge, it will find a way to come out. And yeah, if you think about it, if if we were constrained in what we thought by the words we knew, we would never a be able to learn new words or B, ever have that feeling of thinking, well, what do I want to say? How, how can I best express what I'm trying to say? That thought would be meaningless because you, you, you would be expressing exactly the words you had. Yeah, so I think we can, and I mean, but bear in mind that this theory, that words constrain thought, has a reasonably respectable heritage. I mean, it, you know, it's sometimes called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. It's very, it's very popular among people with a sort of relativist cast of mind who want to suggest that, well you know, the way that we think is not driven by some objective facts about the world. It's it's driven by, you know, our language and our upbringing and our culture. But as a matter of fact, there, do, there isn't much evidence for that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the side of the fence that I'm on, there's no doubt that thought is independent 
not totally, but independent of language. So then we have to say, well, what's going on here then? Right? How is it that we do seem to be able to change the words that are used, you know, by, through the use of political euphemisms, and somehow achieve a change in attitude? And I think here we've got to think about the distinction between denotation and connotation. So denotation is what a word literally means, like the things it refers to. Um, the facts that it proposes are the case mm. versus connotation, which are the things that it invites you to infer. So, so for example, um, you know, there, there's so someone called um, a guy called Scott Alexander, who's who writes a, a very popular called, blog called uh, Slate Star Codex, talks about you know in in um, uh, you, the sort of uh, I care about the poor, you're pro welfare, someone else is a bleeding heart. I'll protect national security. You expand the military. He's a warmonger. You know, the things where you could almost say, well, they mean the same thing. And in this case, you know, an irregular migrant means the same thing as an illegal immigrant. Literally, they refer to the same group of people. So the question is, what's going on, right? What is happening? When we, how, so, how can it be that we are meaning the same so, thing, yeah. and yet somehow importing, we're importing a sense of... If, if you say illegal immigrant, it means the same thing as a regular migrant, but you're importing a bunch of assumptions about people maybe being feckless or scroungers or criminals. And but I, they're I, not literally you're implied saying, what, by the, the meaning. The denotation is the same, it's the connotation that's different. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, Chris, so... Well, I mean, yeah, I think I think there are two, two things. I think one is um, that a part of it is just about ditching the baggage associate the emotional baggage associated with a word for a period of time it's why the the phrases for you know minority groups who are subject to you know um uh, sort of prejudice uh over time they they shift so you know uh, you'll use one one word will become acceptable for a group but eventually over time because it becomes associated with all the prejudice against them uh you then um it then becomes unacceptable uh to that group and to society at, at large, uh, so I think there's an evolution in these terms, and they, it works for a certain period of time. You, you know, you you drop the baggage, uh, but then it picks it back up again because society hasn't changed and its, its attitudes towards that group haven't changed. Um, I think the uh, the the sort of second um, point uh, I've completely lost now. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of exactly that. Um, Oh, who's the who's the fabulous Tory MP who looks like Walter the Softy? Rhys Mogg. What's his first name? Jacob. Jacob Rhys Mogg. I think he's recently in a small, a very small amount of trouble um, uh, for calling someone else a cretin. Can't remember who who was the victim of this. Hmm. Um, Some cretin. Uh, scathing, scathing. Maybe a more uh, verbal blow, but um, yeah, I and mean, he was criticised because cretin is obviously a sort of old-fashioned term for a mentally disabled person, and. Uh, but the interesting thing about the word cretin, actually, is that it comes from uh, Swiss French uh, for Christian, a Christian, a Christian person. And um, so uh, apparently it was um, there were various genetic disorders in Switzerland because they live in small, isolated communities, quite a lot of inbreeding. And uh, the, the it was a sort of a nice way, a nice way of referring to people who were, you know, might otherwise have been called uh, simpletons or whatever, was <laughs> to call them a Christian in the sense of a sort of poor, benighted fellow. Yeah. So cretin started out as political correctness. It was the politically correct way of describing someone who was a simpleton. And uh, and, and obviously through through its sort of 
regularization became well known and applied and thought of as the just the word the word that you use for people like that and then of course it becomes used as an insult perfect right it's a perfect insult because people don't realize it's a politically correct term anymore um you know and then and then and then now of course then we we abolished words like cretin in the you know throughout the 20th century because they were considered insulting because people were using them as insults now you know you whatever word you come up with it will not stop people refashioning that word as an insult and eventually you'll have to get rid of that and, and move on to a new unsullied word but the point is that it's not the word doing the damage which is how it feels people feel like it's the word that's bad but it's the thought that's bad and and simply giving people a new a new untried weapon doesn't mean that they won't test it out and eventually discover a way to use it which is going to be hurtful and we'll have to find and, uh, something new and i think you know um it it, it is you know there are certain words which are st- you know refer to groups that are still taboo and you know i would argue rightly rightly so because they carry you know connotations so the the um you know the two syllable n word uh is 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 a word which has so much um history associated with it uh that you know you you and in uh, you know, in polite society, you would automatically exclude yourself from that polite society by using using that word in almost any context because uh, of the way it's been used um, historically. And I, and I think there's something about that act of making a word taboo and, and not being not being used that is symbolic in some way of sort of saying right everything that you know was attached historically to uh, to that word. Um, is is wrong and we accept that that's wrong and by by making the word toxic and and ditching it we're acknowledging that that doesn't mean that you've got rid of racism right you you obviously you haven't but but part of the process of trying to deal with racism i i think there is a there is a place for some words which are which are rightly taboo i don't think we're sort of getting below this i think we're still being a bit superficial here so so far, I mean, I think I'm sure most sociologists or and or linguists would say something along, to paraphrase, we're saying, you know, language is fluid. Uh, there are certain things that will always be taboo. Um, there are certain, uh, yeah, and the meaning of words can change. No, I think and we've gone to, I think we've gone two levels deep here, right? People no, think, people think the intuitive thought that people have yeah. is that language uh, merely is, serves our thoughts. Right. And that uh, we describe the world using language. And if we need to, we can invent a new word, right? Um, If you go a level deeper, you go, oh, hang on a minute. Our thoughts are conditioned by language. Now, we discussed that and said, well, in the strong sense that we literally can't think things that we don't have words for, that's not true. But in the sense that connotation is an important element of language, that is true, right? So we've gone, gone, that's, that's a level deeper, but then, but then we've we've gone beyond that. We've gone beyond that, and now we're discussing. So we are being deep. I think we, I think we have got we. <laughs> I mean, because the, look, it's like you know, we we pushed through two two stages of of theoretical development here. We've come all the way from the natural intuitive concept of language, through the relativist thought is constrained by language to the you know the postmodernist interpretation, which is well, it's a bit of both. Uh, well, okay. Before Chris comes in, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, There's a lot of this going on. Yeah. W- no, but think. But thinking about this um, is about when you when you you had a word and now it's gone. 
This is we're losing words. <laughs> but what about rate. what about um, so bringing it back to how we started out with the government instituting a new vocabulary? So so yeah, well, I, so I think it is particularly important. Language is particularly important in the context of policy and especially in the context of law legislation. Because, for example, like if you take the um, the U.S. debate around the term marriage, okay, what what does marriage mean? What does it mean legally? That's when. Uh, you know, that's when you you um, really are into the issue of okay, this isn't this isn't just about you know the the, the meaning of a word now. This is about what uh, what people are legally allowed to uh, you know uh, allowed to do. Are same same sex couples um, going to be granted the same set of legal rights as um, you know different sex couples? Uh, and and in that context, and policy is not dis- it's one stage removed from legislation, uh, and the way we frame things does actually start to drive real world events. So I I think in that context, language is very important. And in fact, the whole legal profession, you know, is is about gaming language. It is all about you know what how can you know here's the law written down how can we subvert that or to, you know make advantage from from that i i um, just i completely disagree i think this is this is a sort of overly cynical view of what law is about i feel like law is about um you subverting if you want to describe it like that logic or at least lo- using the logic uh, of a particular set of laws to prove that something is the case in a particular case um but if you take, you know, right, and it isn't about language, it's about what that language means. And that's why legalese is so tedious, because it really, really tries to leave no ambiguity at all. And the problem is that language is full of is full of ambiguity because, you know, we don't always have a completely clear denotation. If you take marriage. Now, the problem here is you could just describe you could just say, look, we're not you can call it marriage if you want, but we're just going to call it relationship X. And it's a legal status that you have and that you is voluntarily entered into two people. And here are the things that you get, just like any other contract. You get this stuff legally if you enter relationship X. Now, the problem is and I and I, don't, I mean, I can't really see what's to stop people entering into that relationship contractually anyway regardless of whether the law calls it a marriage or not. But clearly the fact that it's called a marriage seems to be a big deal here. And I think it's to do with the fact that people think, well, a marriage, that's a man and a woman at a church, and the woman's wearing white, and there's lots of people there, and they're dressed nicely. And that's what a marriage should be like. It shouldn't be two guys. That's ridiculous. That's not that's not what I think of when I think of a marriage. So that can't, we, it's it's the idea of calling that a marriage is is a just preposterous. That's I get I I kind of guess that that's what's behind people's opposition to same sex marriage, uh, because because if you just said well look, there is legal relationship X and and two men can enter into it, it, it feels to me that that would be well I think there would be no, no emotion attached to it about any more than the two men having a flat share yeah. together or see, legally uh, well, jointly earning a house or something like that. And here's where I think sort of. Um, uh, you know, here's where I think kind of dog whistling comes in. That the 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 debate is around the definition of a word, but it's not about the definition of a word. It's about the it's about the restriction of rights to a particular a particular group. So you make a fuss about it being ah well, it's it's you know it's merely about my understanding. Nobody is actually emotionally invested in the the um, 
the actual meaning of... Uh, I think here we have a factual disagreement about what it is people are trying to achieve. Now, shut up, Fraser. No, 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 no. Listen. Right. Make no, it no, quick. Listen. Make it, it quick. It is quick, right? So you appear to believe that all like gay couples want is to have the same legal status, in some sense, as uh, heterosexual couples. I deny that, and I think that uh, if they had said, right, we're not going to have and gay... social no, I'm finished. And I'm social finished. I'm finished. They, that if the law had said, right, we're not going to call it marriage, what we're going to do is we'll call it, you know, cabbage or something, and and it's, it's a made-up thing, but all the legal status is the same. It's exactly the same, but... Uh, but we're just not going to call it marriage. It's going to be a new law which is uh, identically reproduces the effect of marriage. Then I think I think gay people would still object object to that because yes, because, it, there's because a, there's a, there's a, yeah. So it's not about legal rights. It's about they want the connotation of marriage. They want it to okay. be Chris, like a marriage. Briefly, Chris, come back and all the other things we think of. Well, yes. So they want marriage. they want the legal status and they want the societal acknowledgement of of their relationship, which you know is is. Um, is part of the the process of being you know um viewed viewed equally with their you know different sex couples um listen we need to wind up but before we do there's just something i want to get on to talking about language i want to talk about bad language specifically i want to talk about swearing all right yeah let's do it um now just think of yourself as uh, on a scale of zero to ten across and across all situations because obviously we behave differently we talk differently in different situations we don't swear on we don't swear on podcasts for example usually um but on, on from zero to ten zero never swearing ten swearing every other word um across most situations where would you class yourself think about that for a second um nick i'm, I'm going to take a guess i think you're about a seven what do you say i no, i it, the average is totally meaningless because it isn't true anyway yeah, i mean it is but i mean you, you know like me like the three of us actually we've all got kids we've all trained ourselves to stop swearing at home in see front of the kids. i've got well, a guilty secret but yeah. anyway yeah well I, I mean you know what i mean is okay let's put it another way are you, a, big, got, are you, a, so, so are you a bit of a swearer conscious. or not do you think i i i'm perfectly happy to swear like mad yeah i'll 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 for completely incongruous reasons yeah. in, in fact often i'll just be sweary in a context just because it's out of context right it's yeah no problem uh, at all. chris are you a big swearer uh, or not i don't yeah. think you are well there you go that's that shows how well you know me uh no so we have a um we have a jar at home as our family and when we do things that are positive uh you get to put a a thing in the jar and we fill it up and my the main thing I what? get points. Shouldn't for, you get stuff back out of the jar when you do something positive? Uh, right. So when the jar gets full, the family get a a collective treat. So right. But if you a, go on, carry on. Anyway, the point is, my you can main, all swear at each other or something yeah, for half an hour. My main my main reason for getting things is prohibiting myself from swearing because I swear so loosely in front of my my children and it's something i'm trying to curb so okay. they award me something when i when they hear me or okay wow yeah. i mean that's interesting i'm surprised whereas i'm, I'm gradually upgrading my swearing i've no, i'm now i'm now saying uh, bullshit and balls in front of the kids <clears throat> whereas whereas i think i think when they're a bit younger and, a, and and less able to realize that that's transgressive i was able consciously to not do that yeah because i actually get i'm, I'm a bit of a swearer um, I'm actually quite turned off, actually, by people who swear in the wrong way, um, by which it, I think some people do it with a lack of finesse. 
Um, I unlike, think you're right. Unlike myself. Um, but I actually get quite a bit of a, a guilty kick out of swearing in front of my kids because I like the shock that it causes. And I know, and they sort of freak out and go, Daddy, you're not meant to say those words. And uh, and I and I say them. I just say them. Um, you mad madman! <laughs> Lock him up. But also, I know there's a frustration from their side, which is quite comical because they know that they can't say it. And then afterwards, I have to go through this big thing of like going right, but you never say it. Um, I'm sure there's hypocrisy. Something, I, yeah, absolutely. I was about to say there's something deeply wrong about this, and I think you summed it up in one word: hypocrisy. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sort of sure we, what sort of conclusion we've got to there, other than we all quite like swearing. Um, I feel like we got to some firm conclusions. I mean, were you on this podcast or not? Yeah, I mean, like, yes. But okay, what was nice is that you two were disagreeing at the end. That was nice. But I just don't think. But no swearing. No swearing. Thank fuck for that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, we're going to wrap up there. So uh, thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Nick Hare and Chris Rag of Aleph Insights. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.